Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for all your goodness and love towards us sinners. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins which Jesus has won for us, which has been granted to us by the gifts of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that your word still continues to strengthen us in faith and to work your will in our lives. So grant us now so to study and meditate on your word that we may grow in faith, be established in a living hope, and that you'd kindle in our hearts a true and genuine love for you and for our neighbors. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so last time uh, we only had a limited, uh, short, shorter time, and we had the vision, a renewed vision of the 144,000 who had the name of God the Father and the Lamb uh, written on their foreheads, as opposed to, or in contrast to, uh, those who worshipped uh, the beast and received the mark of the beast, which is 666, on their foreheads and their arms. And and the, and and how we saw how God essentially uh, treats these two groups as the as a sort of binary uh, division of mankind, those who have worshipped the beast and those who have not, those who have not worshipped the beast are the ones who are given the mark, and those uh, who have worshipped the beast have the mark uh, fall under God's uh, condemnation. And uh, <clears throat> and the the angel came with eternal gospel, and we had a proclamation of God, the glory of God, and then. In verse 8, the last verse we looked at last time, a second angel came uh, proclaiming that Babylon is fallen, uh, echoing the prophet Isaiah uh, chapter 21. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And we have the first reference there to the drinking of the wine of wrath, or ESV translates as wine of passion, uh, to do with se sexual immorality and sin. And this theme of drinking wine uh, as a as a form of uh, here it is a um, something that Babylon had done to nations. That is to say, they had uh, intoxicated the nations with her uh, um, with her um, uh, unchastity. And now we will see how the drinking of wine uh, will come become a sign and a symbol of wrath, not. Uh, amongst people, but God, the wrath of God. So, so the, that image uh, gets developed and picked up a little bit later on. So, there we have the first two angels of this uh, chapter. From verse nine onwards, uh, we get more angels. The third one, which is still numbered, and then another three. So, what I suggest we do is we uh, read first of all from verse nine to verse thirteen. If uh, we could have a volunteer to read, please. Thank you. <laughs> and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. 
Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and faith in their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, for their deeds follow them. Uh, thank you very much. Any uh, uh, initial comments or questions to begin with? Anyone? Um, I was just reminded of Jesus's words about um, the cup of wrath that he had to drink, or the cup that he had to drink. Yes, oh. where you're about to say the same thing. Yeah, it's interesting the contrast between the, you know, there's a cup of wrath and then there's a cup of salvation. Yes. Yes, I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Mm. Yes. And I'm also um, um, has startled, actually, you know, the torment, uh, those who are tormented in the presence of uh, of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. It's the... <laughs> It's just an interesting image. I don't know what it means. Okay. Do you have any thoughts about it, or is it just that you are struck uh, by it? Well, I'm struck by it, and um, uh, because I mean, I hope that it, it doesn't include the saints, because I don't think I would like to see the torment of people. So I, I don't know. It's just the same. I just I've never thought of it before. Actually, it's so only now that I've been reading it that uh, you know, you okay. know. The, that stood out yes uh yeah uh, adrian yeah um i mean we i think it's often presented that uh once you've taken the mark and worship the beast that you've put yourself beyond repentance i see is is this how some of you know luther and the, the other lutherans saw this um well Let's let's look at it. So let's to answer that question. So it's these are all very good and important questions, observations. I think the the um, I mean th this is clearly a a scene to do with uh, judgment that falls upon those who have worshipped the beast. And remember again, the worship the word worship it means to is to bow down to, which is to say to acknowledge the lordship or the authority of the beast. So it's, you know we we have this. Uh, we are so ingrained in our thinking because it goes back a thousand years nearly now. This so secular uh, divide between the secular and the religious. So worship is religious activity, whereas uh, accepting political authorities is a secular business. And um, you know we we divide church and state, uh, even if it's not in the constitution in our minds. And much of the rest of the world, and certainly historically, the rest of the world does not recognize that divide. And one of the reasons why early Christians were frequently persecuted locally and sometimes across the empire was because just like everybody else, they did not make that divide, that distinction between the secular and the, you know, the political and the religious. So, for example, Rome's claim to dominion over nations was not, if you like, purely political. It had a strongly religious element to it because the politics and the religion went together and so if you know a very it was it was not uncommon for the emperor for example to be the high priest of jupiter because he was the emperor he didn't have to go to seminary for it <laughs> because that wasn't the point and you if you think of like in in our in our world and in our sort of 
proximity to our world, uh, there's a form of what, what some often call uh, Islamic extremism. And it's not really, I think, they've called, the moment you call it extremism, you kind of make it to sound really, really strange and odd and, and sort of alienating. It's, it's a particular form of puritanical Islamism, which isn't shared by all Muslims. But Islam is not a religion in that, in that kind of narrow sense. Islam is a whole way of life, including the political. And so for people to want to establish a caliphate is a very Islamic thing. It's not an un-Islamic thing to do at all. And very, very many times Christians have been engaging in just the same project. So when they, uh, at the uh, end, so in, the, in the Reformation, in the middle of the 16th century, when you had the religious wars, the principle that is, it works really nicely in Latin, eius regio cuius religio. Um, uh, it doesn't doesn't come across so well into English. So, so the, whosoever region it is, that person's religion will dominate. In other words, if the prince is Roman Catholic, then the whole region is Roman Catholic. The whole if the prince is Lutheran, the whole regions that the whole principality is Lutheran and Reformed, and so on. And the assumption was that you you want you know you can't separate these things out. And so it is to say Jesus is Lord is a subversive statement, and it ought to be a subversive statement. It's not that we we have we live in a liberal society which permits us also to exercise our religion, and then we exercise our religion under the umbrella of the liberal society. No, the umbrella is the gospel, and Jesus is Lord, which we happen to inhabit, we happen to confess it in liberal society, which allows us to do that more or less on and off. But the Membership in the democratic community is not our primary identity. Our primary identity is to be a worshipper of Jesus, which is not just to say that we exercise, you know, we engage in religious exercises directed at Jesus, but rather we bow down and acknowledge Jesus as Lord, as opposed to the, as opposed to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. Give unto Caesar, or render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and render to God what belongs to God is a division of labor in one sense, but it also puts the Caesar very firmly in his place in a way that was unacceptable to the empire and still remains unacceptable today in many ways. Even though we're not called to worship the state, nevertheless, the state, if, if the state or society or whatever, or the, the law claims primacy, in our lives, and it has to, you know, to to give to give uh, any anything, whether it's uh, the constitution or uh, the state or the nation or the NHS or whatever it is, whatever you give, if if that gets primary to place, that is worshiping the beast, because you're saying the beast is Lord, the rival to Jesus, and that. In some ways, you could say that ought to put us in uncomfortable positions on a regular basis. Jesus calls up taking up your cross. And when he says take up your cross, it doesn't mean be willing to bear the burdens of life. No, it means be prepared to die for the faith. And this is where the um the 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 reference that was mentioned earlier to Jesus drinking the cup comes in. 
James and John said, can we sit, you know, please can we sit at your right and left when you come in your kingdom? I said, are you willing to be baptized with the baptism with which you are? Yes, yes, of course I, we are. They said. And that's the that's the setting. You will be baptized, you will drink, you know, Jesus will drink the cup of God's wrath. Are you willing also to drink that cup? And of course, like, you know, the, the whole, there's so much going on there, but, you know, think of the cup of vinegar that, or the, the vinegar that's offered to Jesus to drink. I thirst, and so they give him sponge with vinegar. Um, and it, but that was that was the least of Jesus' worries. He was drinking cup of God's wrath, and we don't ever have to do that. So long as we are found in Him, we will instead be given a cup of the world's wrath. I saw a some a cartoon the other day. Or was a cartoon? It was like somebody had mashed up some some scenes from a film two photographs were two people in conversation and one says you can't judge me only god can judge me to which the person replied you do realize that's worse right <laughs> you know you realize that's the worst outcome and drinking the cup of wrath the world offers is far preferable to drinking the cup of wrath that god will make the nations drink and so if you worship the beast on his image and receive a mark on his on his forehand, you will drink the wine of God's wrath, which is one way of saying, uh, 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 oh, saying on the one hand that you will fall under God's wrath and you'll have to live with it or, or receive the consequences of God's wrath, which can be put in another, which which is to say that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath will be no no benefit to you. You do not benefit from Jesus's work. You're on your own. Those two things are the same thing. The wrath of God will fall upon all wickedness and ungodliness. And either you take refuge in Jesus, who drank it for you, drank your, you know, drank up the wrath of your wickedness and ungodliness, or you will bear it yourself. This is where why impenitence is so so dangerous. Which is, you know, I, I always when I teach confirmation. Uh, to whether it's youngsters or to, or to older people, when we come to the uh, sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. So, what, what, when I say temptation, what comes to mind? And people always begin to list sins. And of course, in uh, and the small catechism kind of uh, cuts across all of that. Says it talks about uh, false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Because your sins alone, then they can't, they can't damn you, condemn you. What damns you and condemns you is your sins not dealt with by Jesus. And so what, what you need is faith in Jesus. And if you have faith in Jesus, then your sins will not count against you. But what happens with the impenitent is that they sin and say, I like this and I want to keep on. I, I want to keep this and I don't want you to take it away from me. And if you're not careful, God will say to you, fine, have it your way then. And then you have to answer for it because Jesus, you're no, you're no longer giving it to Jesus to answer for. So that's the issue here. Um, and look at you know the and the, and the language is very forceful. You will drink the wine. He will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength um, into the cup of his anger. Uh, this is partly a uh, reference to. Typical first century custom when you drank wine, people very rarely drank wine neat. It would be diluted with water. 
And so there's this uh, this is strong brew and it's completely undiluted. You drink it neat. And what does that lead to? You'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is again, this is volcanic language. Um, there are several several things, uh, places in the Old Testament that refer to the drinking of the wine of God's wrath. So I'll just uh, list, I'll list them here and if you want to write them down and look them up, uh, Isaiah 51 uh, two places, verse 17 and 22, Jeremiah 25, Psalm 75, verse 8. All these, uh, these places are keep, uh, that have this, where this image of the drinking of the cup of God's wrath. So it's a, it's a very powerful Old Testament image in the major prophets in, in, in Psalm um, 75. And this whole section here really is, is drawing on Old Testament imagery. And Verse 11, which again draws on Isaiah 34, the smoke of their torment. You imagine you drop somebody into kind of molten lava, drop them into the, uh, yeah, into the, um, into the stuff that comes out of, out of the volcano. And again, obviously, I mean, it, uh, the fire and sulfur is, uh, what, what's the most, uh, most, most common or, or the most powerful, um, Popular image of fire and south in the Old Testament. First come, first served. Uh, Kylie. Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. Which, you, if you recall, was given, you know, was pleaded for by, you know, Abraham tried to whittle God down to, uh, to for, for his mercy. And God, every, at every, every you know, God, they, they had this, uh, uh, this bargaining going on back and forth, and every time Abraham said, "What you know? Can we can we just bring the you know? Can we just set the the um, your requirement a little bit lower still? What if they're for a hundred, fifty, ten? And every time God said, "Okay, fine, if I find," and basically they, all you could find was Lot and his family, and they were rescued. Fire and sulfur fell upon all the wicked, and then that sort of becomes that that image is then used later on in again in in Ezekiel in Psalm eleven. Um, Ezekiel 38 and Psalm 11 is used again to um, to speak of God's wrath, fire and sulfur. And if you've ever been or even seen pictures to or been seen pictures of the uh, Dead Sea and, and its coast, you can see that, which is where Sod Sodom and Gomorrah are believed to have been. <sighs> What's left behind is not very pretty. It's certainly not very habitable. Sort of thing you go but you go there by coach to float in the Dead Sea for a bit because it's kind of cool, but you wouldn't want to stay there overnight and you know pitch your tent. You drop somebody into that hot lava and watch them sizzle. <laughs> Smoke comes up. Right? That's the thing. Now it says in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Why? That was somebody's question earlier, I think Ray, you kind of referred to that. What would that? What, what what does that signify? Or what do you think? What, what comes to mind? You know, we said, you know, the, this is all happening before God and his angels, or Jesus and his angels. Yeah, yeah, Adrian. Uh, yeah, so a reminder, God's omnipresence. Can you uh, explain a little bit more? Uh, well, didn't, didn't Dave say, if I go in the science, if I go to, so go to Shale and try and hide from God, he's there? Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's a very... Um, 
a very important aspect of it, like this of of biblical teaching that you can't kind of get away from get away from god so god sees all things and but here we have reference to jesus specifically and god's angels so god pours his wrath and jesus and the angels are witnesses i mean think of a i mean the the culturally the most probably the prominent image of modern day uh capital punishment is is from the united states mm. you know and and you have every time it takes place you have witnesses an audience he witnessed and this and and the witnesses are, are significant too and they're there you know to and and in this case in case of jesus why would jesus and the angels stand as witnesses of their punishment specifically why jesus and the angels what do what do what do they have to do with it what do they represent well i think one word answer is righteousness you know, God, God's God's holy angels, and Je you know Jesus Himself, who died for these people, and who have instead worshipped the, the the beast. So He stands there as a, as a witness, uh, and the angels who ministered to Jesus, who are uh, who are see Jesus' servants, and therefore also represent righteousness. They too stand there as witnesses of this. Um, and verse eleven. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is one of the passages behind uh, the teaching that is found in Article 17 of the Oxford Confession. Uh, our churches also teach that at the consummation of the world, Christ will appear for judgment and will raise up all the dead, to the godly and elect he will give eternal life and endless joy, but ungodly men and devils he will condemn to torment to be tormented without end. So that that without end comes from here. It's an it's an, a never ending uh, punishment. Now the question was, if you have taken up, you know, first of all, could it could could we end up there? You know, do his saints end up in this position? His saints do not. Because they're his saints. They have not taken the mark of the beast. They've taken the mark of the name of the Father and the Lamb. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And remember, this is a good good place for us to remember what to be saved means. Its chief use in the New Testament is future, not present. Most commonly, when you have the verb to be saved, the New Testament says we will be saved. Yeah, you may have come across or might have even uh, um, inhabited the world where um, the phrase to be saved is used as a synonym for making a public confession of faith and being publicly regarded as a Christian. I remember we used to we used to run a youth group in our church when we had more youngsters and we had uh, people, uh, unchurched kids would come along and also uh, some children from other churches. And there was one family who came from a uh, sort of let's say a Pentecostal background in Pentecostal church. And they'd been, you know, they'd be raised in the Christian home and they went to church every Sunday since they were tiny and they came to our holiday clubs and they came to a youth club. And then one time their grandmother dropped them off at the youth club and said, Oh, great news. This girl, the eldest girl was saved yesterday. And, um, I had to kind of think, take do double take and think, think what does she mean by this given this girl as far as I've, I've known this girl since she was about seven and she's always been a christian girl and of course what she meant was she stood up in front of the church and 
made a public proclamation of faith that she was saved. Now, the Bible doesn't tend to speak of becoming a Christian in those terms. It does very rarely. Usually say being saved is a future reference. It's a reference to what will happen at the last judgment. To be saved is to be rescued on the one hand, and on the other hand, it also means to be healed or to be made whole. To be saved and to be healed are synonyms in both in, in Greek as well as in Latin. You know, where we have, it is truly meet, right, and salutary. Or we thank you for, uh, for uh, giving us this, this salutary gift. What does this salutary mean? Salutary. So, it's, you know, it's the word you use when you're shopping or, you know, uh, chatting with your friends over the fence. Salvific. What does that mean? Use, use non-Latin words, please. Anglo-Saxon <laughs> words only. Healing. Healing, yes, on the one hand. But it also means saving. Now, salutary in the post-communion collect for this salutary gift is actually a, tr a translation from a German, which means healing. A whole, wholesome in the kind of old-fashioned... Wholesome, yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, but it, it salutary also means saving or, or to do with salvation. And so at the last judgment... You will arrive there and the books will be opened and marks will be in your tattoos will be examined. Are you what with what are you stamped or branded? And all of a sudden you find that despite all your sins and despite all your faults, you'll be saved and rescued from this. There's this pit of fire and sulfur and you won't fall into it. That's what salvation means. And if you are baptized and you live by faith in Christ, there's no danger at all. So this fearful image is not to put terror into you, although it should put you in mind of what happens to those who forsake the faith. So it should, it should provoke in us repentance and a right fear of God's judgment such that we do not become complacent and careless and distracted from what is most needful for us. But at this, and but then comes the second question, what about those who have taken the mark of the beast? Can they be saved? Whoever believes in his baptized will be saved. So this is not saying there is... Uh, the point of this passage is not to say once you've taken this mark, whatever it is, you know, you put, you've, you've had the chip implanted or the sick, uh, the barcode branded on your wrist, whatever this kind of a fanciful version, that once you got to the point, there is no coming back. Because, of course, if you look at the first century church, it was full of worshippers of images and worshippers of, of, of the beast who had then heard the gospel, had repented and had been baptized and now became believers. And there you've all heard those stories from the early church of you know, um, you know, people who at one time in their lives were charged with uh, crucifying Christians and then would 30 years later we were crucified as Christians themselves. Converted by the, uh, you know, hearing the gospel and often, you know, brought to hear the gospel by the courage and the joy of the martyrs. So it's not describing, if you like, uh, fixed fates. It's rather describing uh, it's describing what happens at the last judge 
So if anybody is marked with the mark of the beast, and that's the majority of the world's population at any given time, they need to be brought to be to 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 Jesus to be bought. And the whole language of of uh, redemption is a language of slave trade. You know, we we are property of Satan, and Jesus buys us. He has bought us by his blood. Jesus went to the slave market. All these people branded with the mark of the beast. And he said, I'll have him. I'll buy her. Here's my blood. You know, it's, we, these words have become so kind of culturally Christianized that we, that we don't hear them anymore. To be redeemed is to be found in a slave market and bought. Bought for freedom. And this is you know, when Paul talked about Galatians, for, for freedom crisis, freed us. That's what he, that's what we talk about. Jesus, you know, I, I and, and when Jesus in John's Gospel talks about setting us free, and because he said, "Whoever sins is a slave to sin," but he has come so that we may have freedom. And the Jews said, "Well, we'll never, never be enslaved to anyone." They get it. We should get it too. And so that's if like the 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 warning for us. This is mostly given as an image, however, to us, not as a as something to make us wary or or worried or even not even primarily to call us to repentance. This is given us primarily as an encouragement. That though it seems that those who carry the mark of Jesus are being trampled down and are being ostracized and being persecuted, and, and it's, it's a loser's venture uh, to take on G the mark of Jesus, this is how this thing ends. And this is where I'd like to turn <coughs> briefly to um, Psalm 77. Except I meant 73. 73, not 77. And though it's 20, all 28 verses, I'd like to read the whole psalm. Um, we won't discuss the whole psalm. We won't do a Bible study in this psalm, but I just want to get the whole story. Um, if you could maybe have someone read the first uh, um, 15 verses and somebody else read the, the second half. If you could have two volunteers, it would be great. Okay, read the first 15 verses. Thank you, Jim. I'll do the second half. Thank you. The Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was as envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. And it's firm. Uh, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, Pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment, and their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. 
Therefore, his people return here and waters of the full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If so, get to verse. 15, did he say? If I had... Yes, please. Oh, yeah. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I deserved, discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one wakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell you of all your works. Tell of all your works. Thank you. Now, there you see this story, the, the common experience of, of the righteous. We've got a whole book of Job about this. The wicked flourish and the righteous do not. And look at the, the key point, verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You see, ah, what we see now is not the end. And um, verse 22, I think, is particularly pointing. When I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you, i.e. irrational, unthinking. We discussed, we we're studying Psalm 32 last uh, last week. Talk about, you know, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding. And so that's the whole, that is, in a sense, that's the, the biblical answer to the problem of uh, injustice in the world. Wait, we're not there yet. Wait. Your lifetime is not necessarily long enough to see this play out, but it will play out. And God will deal with all injustice and all wickedness. Uh, Adrian. Just thinking as a sort of modern day illustration of this, how, how many of Putin's oligarchs have sort of been pushed out of windows in the last uh, 24 months? 
They have a very high suicide rate. Mm, of that. Yes. And but you you have this. I mean, one of the things that one of those earth shattering things in 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 uh, human history, uh, and and which had a has had an extremely profound influence on world history, on Western culture, and on Christian theology is the Holocaust. And one of the things that makes the Holocaust so shocking is not just the scale of what happened. I mean, there have been genocidal things before, and obviously modern technology managed to make it more more so but the fact that all these things happened and it's happened and there's nothing you can do do to undo it there's no compensation you can offer you know it happened and it just it, it kind of stands as this sore in our history like it kind of it can't be erased and the uh, and the bible says it will be dealt with god will deal justice deal out justice when he's ready for it and God, you know, part of God's mercy, part of God's justice is that he punishes peoples already in time. And we see this from time to time. We see how God punishes Israel. I personally, this is my opinion. This is this is not a biblical uh, truth, but my opinion is that the the ungodliness and and the kind of decline of the Christian faith in the West is actually an if a an is is part of God's punishment on our unfaithfulness. It's not just something you know. I know no amount of evangelism by us is going to reverse it, unless God wills it. And God has removed the gospel from other places before. And there's a warning in the Old Testament about famine of God's word. But the the uh, at the same time, God's mercy means that He does not deal with our sins here and now, there and then, with kind of immediate judgment. He reserves his judgment until the last day, which means that there's always time for mercy and repentance while there's still time. Today is the day of salvation. And so this is this is part of the part of the uh, if, if you'll pardon the phrase beauty of this passage with all his terrors is like says God will not ignore ungodliness, idolatry and un, and, and injustice eternally. Tammy. Well, the psalm that that we just read um, is linked so much with verse twelve. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, because the I, I don't know. I think the endurance means when that period comes where there's all this evil going on around you, and it would be so easy to just give in and be like everybody else. To have that endurance to know that even though it looks like these people are getting away with lots of stuff, God's justice will prevail in the end. And like when it goes on to say, hold fast to the faith uh, and, and endure what what is around you. Yeah, that's exactly where, in fact, that is exactly where we're coming to know. You're right. And the, it is this whole, it is a, the whole point of, as I said, this is to encourage us. We are being encouraged. We're being strengthened with hope. Um, and it's so easy. Uh, it's so easy to kind of live in the with the, uh, the kind of the immediacy of our surroundings and the immediacy of our experience and, and judge things by our experience, as we you know, as we heard on, on Sunday in the readings in church, as opposed to 
leave things in God's God's hands. There's a character in if you, those of you who read The Hammer of God uh, by Bujars, you know the the uh, these novel series of no, novellas about uh, Swedish pastors and their parish, parishes and and the kind of law uh, discovering law and gospel. If you haven't, please do. Uh, it's very very good. Um, and there's this wonderful character, uh, one of the housekeepers. Uh, in one of the stories, a housekeeper at the parsonage who has this phrase that she just says, uh, we'll just leave it, which the author tells us is shorthand for we'll leave it with God. We'll leave it with God. And where I where I grew up as a child, uh, uh, Christians had this, you know, they would um, um, they would greet each other by shaking hands and saying God's peace. And then they would leave as, as they departed, they would shake hands and say uh, in God's care. Or stay, you know, stay in God's care, and that kind of you know being God's care, and that mean also means a surrendering to His will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that includes the timing. But we also know that God has already revealed to us that He will see this thing through, and we we kind of we mustn't be too too impatient doing the are we nearly there yet from the back seat. We'll get there when we get there. And that is why, as, as Tammy, you, you nicely segued us into verse 12, uh, which is a repetition from chapter 13, verse 10, so the previous chapter. Um, ESV translated here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Literally, it's just here is the patience or the endurance of the saints. And I prefer the I prefer the less, uh, less elegant phrase that John himself uses. Here is the endurance of the saints. Here is the patience of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their... Well, this is where I'm. I'm, I'm not. I'm this verse. I'm unhappy with the ESV. I'm sorry. Um, so the the uh, what, what John actually writes is: here is the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commands of God and the faith of Jesus. That's what he actually writes, and the translators have decided to make it into maybe more elegant English or something. Uh, and so call for the endurance and faith in, in Jesus. But it says the faith of Jesus. So two halves. The endurance of the saints. Here is the endurance of the saints. In where? In this uh, revelation of the end of all things. So wait for it. Like we have in, in the... Uh, um, in the prophet Habakkuk, you know, God Habakkuk's being impatient and so you know, you know, he just God just says, wait for it. <laughs> Salvation will not tarry. You just have to be patient. So he calls for endurance. Blessed are those who endure to the end. The Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Because it's not going to be easy. Who are the saints? Those who keep the commandments of God. And this here, we shouldn't be thinking purely in terms of the law as opposed to the gospel, but all that God has commanded, like where Jesus is in Matthew 28, uh, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And the command doesn't just mean do, uh, keeping the law, but the command means things like believe the gospel. <laughs> um, everything that has been, that God has issued to us. And as I said, the translation is the faith of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? It's often translated into some something else that makes better sense. Faith of Jesus. So it is tra ESV translates faith in Jesus. 
Now, that is part of it. It's not that faith in Jesus is something entirely different, but that's not what John wrote. He could have done. There is a Greek way of saying faith in Jesus. And the New Testament uses that phrase. Paul sometimes uses the faith, phrase faith of Jesus as well. Um, the word faith, as I've said many times before, doesn't just mean faith, as in trust, but it also means faithfulness. That same word has both sides of the relationship, the faithfulness of one and then the faith of the other in the faithful one. It's the same word. And depending on which aspect you're looking at it, it's, it's either the faithfulness or the trust in the faithfulness. So you think of that one word being both sides, you know, like if you've got a, you know, one person's pulling on the rope and the other person being, being pulled. And the action, the movement of the rope is the faith, faith, the pistis, the word Greek word is pistis. And if you look at it from the perspective of the one who's doing the rescue, he's faithful, and he's the one who's kind of dependable. And the one who's being, who's dependent, is also holding on to the same thing, which is the, uh, the, the pistis, the, the, so the, the faith, the holding on to the faithful one is also faith, which we translate as trust. So if it, when he's referring to the faith of Jesus, it, first of all, means the faithfulness of Jesus. Those who keep the command of God and they keep the faith of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus, that is, hold on to it. But that's aspect one. Aspect two, faith itself is something that Jesus had. Jesus trusted in God. And God delivered him. He trusted in God. You know, um, that's what they mocked, they mocked him. They quoted the Old Testament, Jesus, while he was on the cross. You know, he trusts in God, let, let God deliver him. And they thought they were mocking Jesus. They accidentally speaking the truth because they're quoting the Bible. He trusted in God and God did deliver him, just not in the way or at the time that they expected. That called for endurance on Jesus' part. So there's an example of the endurance or the faith of Jesus. He trusted God and God did deliver him. That was aspect two. Aspect three, the faith that we have is something that Jesus gives to us. Our faith is a gift from Jesus. So our faith is the faith of Jesus, which has been given to us. And therefore, ultimately, it is faith in Jesus. So faith in Jesus is there. It's the final piece, the air piece in the uh, jigsaw. So it's a much, much richer thing than just, just, and uh, just in inverted commas, faith in Jesus. It begins with who Jesus is, what he is like. It begins with, and then moves on to what Jesus has therefore done and what he has given to us and therefore what we now have. And we keep this. Those who are, the saints keep the commands of God, that is to say the whole counsel of God, all that God has spoken, is keep the word of God, if you like, and the faith of Jesus, this whole package of trustworthiness and reliability and loyalty and faithfulness of Jesus. And if, they, if we entrust ourselves to that, there we will endure. The word of God and this gift of faith in this kind of the whole fullness of it. And hence the voice from heaven, which says, write this. And here again, this is one of the, uh, not the first time uh, that we specifically, meet, you know, John has said, write this. And like, make, you know, get, get this one down. So this is, so, in other words, this is an oracle for the whole church to be preserved. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, or more literally, yes, 
says the Spirit, indeed, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Um, there's a site, uh, trans, um, some translations say that they may rest from their labors. Some translations say they will, they may rest from their, that they may rest from their labors. Oh, that, so that they will rest from their labor. Uh, there are two different textual versions of it. And one of the oldest and more, most reliable copies of the book of Revelation says, doesn't say that they may, may rest from their labors, but rather for they, because they will rest from their labors. So blessed are they because they will rest from their labors. But either way, he says, you die in the Lord. To die in the Lord is a blessed thing. From now on. Why from now on? Because from now on, as in from then on, Jesus has fulfilled his work on the cross. Yes. Jesus has overcome death, and death, though death remains the enemy, death itself has been defeated, and therefore death cannot kill us. Jesus has forced death to deliver us to him. Hence, dying in the Lord is a blessed thing, that we may rest from their labors, or their deeds follow them. Does that sound like good news? Well, if I tell you it is good news... Tell me why it is good news. Why is it a good news that our deeds will follow us into death or through death? I think it's a God has already sort of wiped out our sins, our bad deeds, so only the good ones will be will still be sort of remain, as it were. Exactly. Spot on. I, I've often used the image, um, and I apologize to those who've heard it too many times, of the kind of uh, prospector with his pan. Trying to looking for gold nuggets from all the mud, you know. It doesn't matter how much mud you got on your on your bowl in your in your bowl. At the end of it, it's the nuggets that count, and and the, everything else will be washed away. And so, when you are arrive at you know when Jesus you know Jesus in in one of the parables says you know what will what will the saints be told? Uh, well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest, and and and. I don't care, and God doesn't care how faithful or unfaithful you feel. In Christ, you are. You know what was that word that we had uh, last week in um, um, verse five? They are blameless. They are blameless, unblemished. Um, and this idea of this rest, which you are again Hebrew. Hebrews chapter four has an extensive, you know, discussion of this. There remains the Sabbath rest for the children of God, for the people of God, and this Sabbath rest. This life is toil and labor, literally and metaphorically, spiritually and and physically and mentally. Death becomes a blessing to us in Jesus' hands because we will rest, enter into rest. And then comes the judgment in more detail. So again, we go, go round. We've you've had this kind of overall picture of judgment. And now we now we kind of go back and we zoom in. Let's look at it in detail. We'll begin to see the details more. Verses fourteen to twenty. Could we have someone read uh, for us uh, the the second half of the chapter or the last part of the chapter? 
Thank you, Kylie. Uh, sorry, should I begin at 14? Yes, please. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Thank you very much. So here we have now uh, two harvests, and this reflects, again, Mediterranean agriculture, where you would have two harvests. You would have uh, the grain harvest in the spring uh, at the end of the uh, the rainy season and at the beginning of the hot, dry summer. And then at the end of the summer, you would have the grape harvest. That is the agricultural cycle. And we have uh, the, the festivals of the, uh, of the Old Testament, where in part calibrated with these. So Pentecost would be the barley harvest around barley harvest time, 50 days after Easter. And <coughs> excuse me. And the imagery of the harvest as for as as the judgment of God um, is uh, a well, uh, if you like, a well-worn um, uh, image which we already have in the Old Testament. So uh, at the end of uh, the middle of Joel three verse thirteen. God says, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in tread for the wine press is full. The vast overflow for the evil is great. So the idea of harvest as a gathering in, you know, it's an, it's an obvious metaphor. The, har the farmer gathers in the crop um, and, and in the same way, God will gather in that which is to be gathered and then deals with it accordingly. Jesus uses this, this imagery several times. You know, the fields are white, you know, laborers are few. Uh, you know, pray to the uh, um, Lord of the harvest to send more laborers into the field. Uh, we have the parable of the vineyard and works in the vineyard. It's all to do with, again, working. Oh, you know, this is this is all over the place. We have the parable of the wheat and the tares and, and, the, and the harvest. That, uh, God will wait. Again, it's the same kind of idea of the endurance of the saints. God will wait until the harvest time to gather everything in, and then he will separate the wheat and the tares. And until then... They all live, you know, grow side by side. They're all this, this imagery is everywhere. Um, and we see that this is, you know, the, uh, uh, th so that's what one image. The other image um, with which it is combined is the image of the son of one like a son of man uh, seated on a white cloud. So I, then I looked and behold, so it gives another vision. Then I looked and behold, a new vision. A white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. 
with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So the sharp sickle is a new thing here. So it introduces the mixing on the two metaphors, if you like. Now, tell me about the white cloud and the one seated on the cloud like one, of, one like a son of man. Aren't um, clouds or isn't clouds there when God's glory is there? Right. So we have God's glory is uh, indeed uh, represented as a as a crown uh, as a cloud. Yes. So, for example, at uh, at Sinai, but also on Mount of Transfiguration. Anything else? Is the title the Son of Man? Um, is that first used in Daniel? Correct, Daniel chapter seven. Now Jesus uses it a lot, but he take picks it up chiefly from Daniel. So Daniel seven. Um, turn to Daniel chapter seven. One of the most important Old Testament passages for understanding. The teaching of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. Verse uh, 13 and 14. Tammy, would you happy to read that for us? Sure. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Thank you. And the the phrase that is translated that in your translation was like a human being is the phrase "son of man." Aha. Okay. Um, so that's the same same for us. The translators have gone for a more idiomatic English English idiomatic translation there. So that's where this phrase "son of man" comes from. It's used in a couple of other places too, like in Ezekiel and some of the Psalms, to refer simply to human being. But when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's using this, and he kind of what's he saying? Is he saying this? Is he kind of being like an Ezekiel, or, or is he being like Daniel? And it's it's all kind of ooh, not quite sure. And then you get to his trial. And they say, are you the son of God? And said, well, you say that I am, but I'm telling you, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. Like, ah, so he's making a Daniel 7 claim. I am, you know, that bloke in, in Daniel 7, that's me, is what he's saying. And what is he given? He's brought to before God with the clouds of heaven and was presented before God and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all people's nation languages should serve him See people's nations, languages. You've seen come across that before, all over the book of Revelation. And his dominion is everlasting dominion, and it, he's got an, a, a kingdom that will not pass away. This is the key in many ways to the book of Revelation, this verse. We've looked at it more than once already, but it, it, it becomes really explicit here now. Now we really, okay, so this, is, this, is what we, this is what we've been talking about all the time. Who is Jesus? Well, first of all, when he says, the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man, was presented before the Ancient of Days. What event is that referring to? What historical event? The, the Ascension. Correct, the Ascension. And folks, I'm going to put in my pitch here. 
<laughs> Until recently, Ascension Day was a public holiday. It still is in some countries. It no longer is. Get yourself to church on Ascension Day. It's like it's like up there. It's, it's as important as Christmas. Really is. It's you know, Easter is that is our chief holiday, holy day, and then the, in, in the immediate next tier, we've got three: Christmas, Ascension, and Pentecost. Don't miss it. It's really, 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 really important because our whole hope presently lies in the fact that Christ is ascended. If you're not, if you don't believe me, read Ephesians one. Okay, it's just so important. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge living and the dead. Jesus' work of ministry of salvation, his ministry of salvation on earth, was not completed until he ascended, and he ascended to take up all authority. And we have hope because Jesus, all authority has been given to Jesus. You know, we all know the Great Commission from halfway through. Make Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Therefore what? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to be. Go therefore. We baptize because Jesus is ascended. We preach, make disciples because Jesus is ascended. We teach God's word because Jesus is ascended and all authority has been given to and so the ascension of Jesus, I will nag you again. Okay? Get thee to church on Ascension Day. 40th day of Easter always falls on the Thursday, and I will not transfer it to the nearest Sunday. I refuse. Okay? Um, but here we have him. He's seated in a white cloud. First of all, the cloud is white. Usually clouds are dark. You know, clouds and thick darkness are around him, says the psalm about God kind of this mystery of hiding God's nature. Here it is white. It's not a mysterious cloud. It is rather a glorious cloud. And so what do we have here? We have the kind of the majesty and the glory shining brightly as opposed, like we have a mountain transfiguration rather than in Jesus, you know, Jesus is white or in Revelation 1, as opposed to the cloud and thick darkness that conceal like on Sinai. So this is a cloud of revelation as opposed to of concealment. And he's seated, meaning what? He's enthroned. The judge sits, you know, all rise. We say in our courtrooms, all rise. And the judge sits down. And if you sit, if he gives, lets you. Jesus is seated. He's in the authority. In the early church, what used to happen is that when, when it came to the sermon, the congregation stood and the preacher sat down, even if it was a long sermon. In fact, if you go to an Eastern Orthodox church, they never, you know, the congregation stands all the way through anyway. And the preacher then would sit down, and by sitting down, he would assume a position of authority. Or as I heard one uh, uh, Reformed uh, preacher say uh, 10, 15 years ago, he said, uh, it's, it's customary that when the army takes his marching orders, it's, it's on his feet, <laughs> making the case that really sermons should be heard standing up. Um, I'm not going to push that one. You get the point, okay? He sat down. He was in authority. He was in charge, like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head. There's one reference to a golden crown in the Old Testament. I'll be really impressed if you know what it is, because I had to look it up. It's mentioned twice, but it's one event. It's uh, David defeats the Ammonites, and he nicks. There's a golden crown that they were in possession of, and it's placed on his head, and he weighed some ridiculous amount of talents, seven talents or something, and really, like, you know, it's like a 50-pound crown. I imagine he didn't wear it for long. 
basically, you know, the David, the chosen one, defeats the hereditary enemy. And he takes on the golden crown. So it's, again, the golden crown is a it's a thing that you wear. It's the sort of thing if you think of a Roman triumph, you come back and you you know you have a you put a a, a crown on your head. Crown can also mean wreath, um, but here it's it's a golden one. And a sharp sickle in his hand. That's where the imagery moves on to the harvest. And another angel. This is angel number four now. And that every time we have an, another uh, have another angel, it's one that we haven't met yet. Got all these lackeys, if you like, uh, these footmen running out from God's court, came out of the temple, uh, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. So the angel is yelling at Jesus, "Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe." What is an angel doing, bossing Jesus about? Any suggestions? Well, he came out of the temple. And so he was being a messenger of God, wasn't he? Yes, exactly right. Oh, so, so the herald comes from the temple, from God the Father said, right, go now. He like, Jesus takes his authority, he waits for them, wait for them, and then the messenger comes and says, here's, here's a message from the Father, go now. Uh, time to start uh, gathering him. Jesus in Mark 4 says this, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprout, uh, sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. See, the time span again is taking time. But when the grain is ripe, it, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. That's where that comes from, that, the image of the sickle. And... Harvest is for you to the Father. When, when, when will the Son of Man return, according to Jesus? Jesus doesn't know. No one knows, not even the Son. Only the Father knows. Only the Father knows. See how the beautiful the scripture here again uh, fits in together. Only the Father knows. The Son assumes his position of you know, as of his, his sonship, and this is part of the obedience and the faithfulness of Jesus. He doesn't presume to take upon himself those things which are the Father's. And the Father then says, now is the time. Now, this is not really a passage about Jesus' second coming, although we know in context that this is, the second coming is involved. This, the focus here is not the second coming. We'll see that in a separate vision. But rather, the kind of, we, we kind of all skip over that, telescope that into the final end result, which is the judgment. And so, he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So this is the grain harvest. Um, and again, this, this image... Is, is used in many places. Uh, Zechariah chapter 5 verse 2 onwards talks about it, but not in your Bibles, <laughs> because your Bibles translate the, uh, uh, the Hebrew text. The Septuagint, the Greek translation, uh, translates it in a slightly different. So, so the, uh, the English translates the Hebrew. Um, and by the way, just a reminder, the Hebrew that, we, that has been translated may not be original always because the oldest copies we have tend to be younger than the copies out of which the Greek was translated. So it's possible, but it says uh, here, um, 
Where are we? I see. What do you see? Said I answered. I see a flying scroll. Uh, you know, Zechariah is a flying scroll. In the Greek text, is I see a sickle. A flying sickle. Uh, it's it's a. Um, but it's a grain harvest, signifying the gathering in of the saints. These are the things that God will put into His barn, uh, the the treasure into His into his, into His barn. But then an angel, another angel, angel number five, came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And remember, God will send his angels. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, God will send his angels. So this is Jesus. First of all, Jesus gathers in the harvest. He gathers those who are his to himself. And then an angel is sent out with another sickle. And then another angel, angel number six in this chapter, um, came out from the altar. The angel who had authority over the fire. We've met the fire. So this is a judgment. The one who's tending the judgment. And he called out with a loud voice to the one who had, put, who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So there comes the second harvest, the grape harvest. And the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So who is now being harvested? The unrighteous. The unrighteous, correct. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. That's the place for unclean things. You know, that's where you'd have your tannery <laughs> and all the other unclean activities are outside the city. That's where you have your refuse, where you throw your dead dogs. Um, they trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle or 1600 stadia. How, how long does anybody know the length of a stadium? Uh, it's 200 miles in my translation. Yeah, it's 184 miles to be absolutely precise. And I, I think, presumably, it says 200 miles to make it a nice round figure, just like the original is a nice round figure. Long way. Yeah. So that's a lot of that's a lot of blood. That's horse, high as a horse's bridle uh, for 200 miles. And now this image of the the wine press and and the grape as blood again, <laughs> again, if you if you if you've ever done this sort of thing i haven't but i you, you can imagine it's a messy business wine presses do you know how wine presses worked yeah yes you just you know chuck the grapes in and then you wash your feet really carefully and then you just tread them until they drop people still do that in some places and go small scale wine making people still do that um and <clears throat> once you come out of there you probably have to get changed and in fact, you put on your wine pressing clothes because they will never get clean again. The stuff is red and it stains. And so it's an obvious metaphor for blood. And here's a little footnote for you. Um, there are some Christians who insist that communion wine must be red wine. Or in fact, some Christians who will say, as long as it's red, it doesn't have to be wine, but it has to be red because it represents the blood of Jesus. And this became such a big thing that in the early 17th century, many parts in Germany, Lutherans insisted on using white wine. 
at communion to say we are not trying to represent Jesus' blood. It is Jesus' blood. This is why it's his blood. It doesn't have to look like it. Any more than his bread, bread has, you know, we don't make bread in the shape of a body to remind us this is Jesus' body. Plus, it's much, much, much easier to clean if you spill any, if it's white wine. But that's that wasn't the main consideration. And in fact, for the first few years when I was here, we used white wine um, as well uh, from time to time, if some of you will remember. Here, the redness does represent blood, but not the blood of Christ, but the blood of the unrighteous being judged. And this, again, this uh, vision or this, this image comes from uh, the Old Testament. We should, by this, by now, we should be, uh, we have learned to expect it. Uh, Isaiah 63. We'd like to turn to Isaiah 63. And just the first six verses, which I'd like to read that for us, please. Isaiah 63, first six verses. Could have a volunteer, please. Who is this who comes from Edom, who in crimson garments from Bosra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Thank you very much. So this is a reference to, uh, he says, Bozra. Uh, Bozra is in Edom. So this is God's judgment on the Edomites. You remember Edom, they were... They were supposed to be a, a brother nation to uh, to Israel because Edom they were descendants of Esau, as Israel were descendants of, descendants of Jacob. And when he came to uh, the destruction of or the attack against um, Babylon's attack against Jerusalem or uh, Judah, um, Edom uh, uh, fought against and, and aided and abetted the destruction of of Judah. Um, and therefore turn against their brothers. And hence you have, for example, the, uh, I think it's fair to say, infamous uh, Psalm 137, um, which, uh, you know, the pop, pop singers always sing the first part of the psalm by the rivers of Babylon. But we, they never sing the last few verses in the pop songs. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, laid bare, laid bare down to his foundations. And then, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed is, shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Harsh, harsh stuff. Nobody ever made a pop song out of that. And very, very, very many re uh, uh, schemes, so reading schemes of the Bible 
leave those verses out, even when you get to Psalm 137. Sing the psalm except the last few verses. But this betrayal of those who were supposed to be kind of fraternal nation um, becomes this sort of image of treachery. So instead of being on the side of the truth, the truth and righteousness and, and standing with their brothers, they join the enemy. And you can imagine that this is a very potent image for early Christians living in the midst of persecution. And anybody who's lived in a totalitarian police state under surveillance will also know that, you know, one of the most hor horrific aspects of something like so the Soviet Empire was the constant informing and denouncing, you know, Stalin's years of when, you know, people were being sent to their prison camps, but in their thousands and tens of thousands. Very often, you know, somebody just, you know, somebody was envious or just wanted, fancied a bigger apartment. So they would denounce the person living in the big apartment and then they'd be rewarded with it and, and off they went, that kind of thing. And that's the sort of, and so we get this treading of uh, the, um, <clears throat> the treading down of those who have turned against God's people. And the, uh, and the crimson of the wine press, of the destruction of the unrighteous, of the ungodly. So you have two images here. One is implicit, the other one is explicit. The implicit image is the gathering in of the harvest on the one hand, the harvest of the righteous, which has been done by Jesus himself. And then God sent, Jesus sends an angel or father, the father sends an angel to gather in the unrighteous. And then, and this leads to this, this sort of unimaginable bloodbath, the destruction of the ungodly. Now went to the sanctuary of God and I saw their end. And all of this is happening emanate happening around the temple temple is a is a central point of all this action which is another way of saying also that this is all happening around the church at worship this is a liturgical liturgically centered thing because we draw we are in the temple of god when we gather around the uh, the word of god and the body and blood of christ the church in worship is drawing near to the temple so the judge, you know, what does what is when it says in the scripture, the judgment of God begins in the church, but it also says, We shall judge the angels. So when we are gathered together as God's people, we are in the center of the place from which judgment goes out. It's like being in the like being in a in a kind of uh, in a safe fortress just before a country or countries pacified that is to say subjected to violence you come in i i was just uh, rem reminiscing the other day um but a terrible experience i had as a child i was about 10 years old i went to a friend's house and we watched an old 1950s western and the final scene is when the hero is trying to you know is, is running away from terrible murderous indians towards the fortress yeah towards uh, a a uh, U.S. cavalry fortress in the in the plains, and he gets as far as the gates. He's banging on the gates, and then the Indians shoot him in the back, and he dies. The end. And then I had to cycle home in the dark, and I was utterly terrified, looking over my shoulder. Um, very, very vivid, a vivid image. But this idea, you know, there's a safe place. It's hostile country, but there's a safe place, and judgment will go out from there. That's what the church is, and that's part of this image here all the time. So it's about drawing near. And when we say in the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, who ascended and is seated at the right hand of, of, of the Father, 
and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. When we confess that as a church, we're confessing it from the side of the judge, judgment as opposed to of the condemnation. In other words, we are, we are inside looking out, not on the outside looking in. So we are not, we are not in that sense, we are not awaiting, um, awaiting judgment so much as we're awaiting redemption. If you think of Romans 8, you know, the whole creation is groaning, waiting for our redemption, the redemption of the sons of God. And so this chapter, with all this terrifying imagery of, of sulfur and fire and everlasting torment and, and this sort of um, gigantic river of blood and, and, and all these other things, is given to us as a means of hope so that we may grow in patience endurance and be more firmly uh, drawn to entrust ourselves to the faithful Jesus and to the dependable truth of god's word if we keep his commandments now then his word of judgment will have nothing against us on the last day and so really you could say that in one sense this is just an expanded like an amplified uh, amplified version of the end of matthew 28 all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me go therefore make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the father and son and the holy spirit and i'm with you always to the end of the world always to the end but you must endure to the end blessed are those who die in the lord from now on they shall rest from their labors so it's another marvelous marvelous uh chapter of uh of uh promise to us um, <clears throat> and and a real ground of hope we have a few minutes left Anything from anyone? Over to you. Any questions? Any reflections? Why does Jesus bring in the wheat harvest, but he gets an angel to bring in the grape harvest? It's it's nowhere explained. And Jesus elsewhere talks about, you know, his angels will gather in. The people i think here the imagery is that you know jesus himself will bring in his harvest he will you know that we are his like we like we have in um uh at the beginning of acts uh the account of the of the uh ascension you know men of galilee why you stand you know why 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 do you stand looking into the sky this jesus whom you saw ascended heaven will likewise come in the clouds of heaven he's the character we are expect we jesus will come and redeem us like in in first thessalonians you know we will meet him in the air he will jesus will come and he will draw us to himself i think that's that's the kind of the the picture that's being created there whereas you know and and he will just okay go deal with the rest i've got my own you go deal with the rest almost that's the kind of good question anything else Nothing at all. Well, I hope that's been uh, helpful to you. I enjoy preparing. But I hope that some of my enthusiasm benefited you too. And if not, at least it didn't get in the way too much. Uh, we will continue next time uh, <clears throat> as we get the last of the plagues uh, in chapter 15. We've had lots of plagues so far. The last lot is coming up. But now we'll close with prayer.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that it is you who is seated in the position of authority and power over all things, and that you have made us your own and imprinted your own name on us and into us, that we live in you and you with us, that, so that we might have a living hope for this life and for the whole world, for all history and time. Grant us your grace that we may grow in faith, trusting, entrusting ourselves to your faithfulness. And that your Holy Spirit would lead us to keeping your Father's word. That no power on earth, nor any temptation from the devil or from our own flesh, may ever lead us astray. But we remain steadfast until the day that you redeem us from the power of all sin and death and bring us to the glory and inheritance of the sons of God. Bless the church and its work of proclamation that the good news of your victory may reach into the lives of many more that at the final harvest those who gather, those gathered into life may be plentiful This we ask for the sake of your holy wounds. Amen.